You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Welcome to Tech Tank. I'm your guest host, Michelle Rubison from the Brookings Institution. Today we're talking about memes on social media and the way they've been used to cause harm both online and offline. Social media has become a complex space. It is simultaneously the place we go to keep up with loved ones and a place where political debate, false information, and harmful speech run rampant. According to recent Pew Research, 64% of Americans say social media has been a bad thing for democracy, and 79% say it has made people more divided in their political opinions. Memes, a ubiquitous facet of the internet, have long been used to spread jokes about current events and popular culture. They've been used by everyone from political leaders to middle schoolers to spread information with humor. If you have used a social media platform, it is quite likely that a meme has made you chuckle, but what happens when memes go beyond a laugh? To talk about this, I'm here with Dr. Joan Donovan and Emily Dreyfus, two co-authors of the book Meme Wars, the untold story of the online battles upending democracy in America. Their book describes the way online subcultures have used memes over time to form and share their beliefs. They counter the idea that memes are inside jokes with no political importance through a look at extreme beliefs that go from the wires to the weeds and inspire offline action. Dr. Joan Donovan is the research director of Harvard Kennedy's Shorenstein Center and the director of the Technology and Social Change Research Project. Dr. Donovan leads the field in examining online extremism, media manipulation, and disinformation campaigns. Her research specializes in critical internet studies, science and technology studies, and the sociology of social movements. Emily Dreyfus is a journalist who covers the impact of technology on society and leads the Shorenstein Center News Leaders Program. She is the co-author of Memoirs with Joan Donovan and Brian Friedberg. Joan, Emily, thank you both for sitting down with me. Joan, Emily, thank you both for sitting down with me. So the term meme gets thrown around a lot in a variety of contexts. Could you start by just telling us what a meme means to you in the context of your work? And within that, what is the meme war that you title your book after? Yeah, so, you know, memes are easy to explain and also very difficult. So, you know, you think of a meme and you see an image with text over it being shared on the internet. And that is a meme. But other, lots of other things are memes as well. And we go with Richard Dawkins' kind of original definition of a meme, which is that it is an idea or a unit of culture that travels through generations, that persists across generations. And therefore, in the book, you know, we use the Gadsden flag, don't tread on me, as an example of a really powerful um, American meme that dates back to the beginning, predates our country, actually. Um, but a meme is a powerful idea that travels through culture and generally needs to be memorable, something sticky about it that will stick in your brain. So pithy, often that means short words or a slogan like stop the steal, very powerful meme. Um, it needs to be a little bit strange that helps it to be memorable. So the don't tread on me flag is a great example. It's got a weird snake on it. It's kind of strange language. Stop the steal is like a little bit ungrammatical. So that helps you remember it. Um, memes, in order for them to be successful and then continue and, and sort of uh, disperse through culture and become really popular, they need to have some attributes like they're authorless. They kind of seem like they came up out of nowhere, even if they were created by somebody. As they spread around, they sort of shed that authorship. And they need to resonate with people in some way. They need to have some sort of idea that very quickly is able to be understood by some people, at least. Memes are sort of like in-jokes in the sense that if you get it, then you're in the in-group. And if you don't get it, you're in the out group. And for me, uh, writing this book was a really interesting experience because I felt like I had been in the out group on memes for all of the internet. Like as an internet journalist, I had spent a lot of time like assiduously avoiding caring about memes because I thought they were silly. 
And I thought silly meant they weren't important. Uh, but the point of our book, and I think a lot of the things that I learned while writing the book, is that memes are a way of shaping ideas in culture. They're a shorthand for spreading ideas. And and ideas can be extremely powerful, as we've seen. And so historically, these are ways for um, belief systems and ideas to get spread around. And they're not to be ignored. They're very powerful. Yeah. And to the second part of your question about why we named our book Meme Wars, um, it goes back to this moment in internet history prior to the 2016 election there was a battle online uh, primarily between Trump supporters and uh, those in support of Hillary Clinton or the Democrat Party um, that played out uh, across all platforms uh, that took the form of, of mimetic warfare. And so this time online is sometimes referred to people as the great meme war where supporters of Trump, and I would say that these aren't necessarily your traditional voting blocks of people, but were people that were animated by being able to participate in the competition around the election, uh, using the internet as their primary means of uh, civic engagement. And so insofar as some people were proponents of Trump, uh, Trump was also supported by people who were um, very much against Hillary Clinton or the Democratic Party or even just in, uh, nihilistically against government in general, which Hillary Clinton really represented the insider point of view. And so in that moment, you had a lot of memes circulating, pro-MAGA ones, as well as Memes like lock her up, memes like build the wall, make America great again itself was a meme. MAGA itself is a meme. And then uh, you had ones that were, you know, the Hillary Clinton campaign tried to uh, villainize uh, Trump supporters as basket of deplorables. She was the one that really made the alt-right a uh, uh, a name brand. Before that, it had been a bunch of loosely assembled uh, white supremacists, as well as folks that were perhaps um, right of center, but weren't necessarily in the far right that might term themselves the alt right or new right at that point. And so that those discussions online were were quite um, explosive, and they included a lot of non-traditional political actors. And I think one of the things that our book tries to highlight is how networked factions in these non-traditional groups are able to have an impact on party politics. And we begin with um, the Occupy Wall Street movement as an example of the way in which fringe movements can articulate their positions using the internet and then how that messaging is really up for grabs by different political actors. So that chapter on Occupy also shows how Breitbart and Bannon and uh, Alex Jones were also vying for attention in that moment and what they had to learn from leftist social movements online. But particularly the meme war that we um, were taking our title from was was the great meme war of 2016. And um, can I, I just wanted to add also on what Joan is saying, the other reason why memes are fodder for meme wars is because they're participatory. So uh, especially on the internet, it's super easy to uh, create a meme or to take a, see a meme that comes to you and then you can change it in some way and put it, make it yours, put it into the context that fits for your group of friends or the thing that you care about. Memes are flexible and participatory. So especially nowadays when there's so much excitement around a topic online. So especially in 2016, the topic of excitement was this race for the presidency. Memes are a 
very simple way to get involved in that. You can make a meme, you can send it out there, and the infrastructure of the internet and the attention of people will potentially take that thing that you put out there and send it into the center of the culture war. And it might get retweeted or amplified by the person who's running for president themselves. Um, and so memes are also transgressive in that they they allow participants who are willing to play with them and are, or who try um, to make them funny or cool or sticky or whatever, allows them to get around gatekeepers like the media who may not have quoted this one random person um, who said one thing about Donald Trump in an article, but because that person made a meme that was really funny and memorable, it ended up getting shared a million times and going viral. Uh, and, and so that's also part of the war. It, you know, meme wars are the culture wars fought with memes and online um, in, in many ways. And the culture wars, as we think of them in terms of like pundits fighting on TV or whatever, they those are still sort of fought by activists on the background or pundits. But the meme wars can be fought by anyone who has access to Photoshop and wants to play. Yeah, that's a really interesting point about how sort of accessible memes are as a format for spreading these ideas. I want to go back briefly to one of the ideas that you mentioned when you were talking about the Occupy movement and social media sites like Tumblr, Twitter, and Facebook in those earlier iterations. You describe these as sort of beginning the idea of online mobilization and content that goes from, as you say, the wires to the weeds or from the online space to real world action. Could you describe the affordances of the Occupy movement, that era, and the platforms in their prior iterations, and how that made the movement so successful and shifted the movements that we see today? Yeah, I'd love to start, and then Emily, feel free to jump in. Um, I began research uh, documenting the Occupy movement as part of my dissertation. Uh, I was very interested in understanding how groups use the internet to coordinate. And so I've tracked uh, using digital ethnographic research methods, the genesis and transformation of Occupy Wall Street into uh, what it later became through Occupy Sandy. So over a year's worth of data collection on social media, but then also participatory ethnographic observation uh, using Occupy Los Angeles as my primary field site, but also engaging with um, activists in New York and then also with the interoccupy.net um, group of activists that were using conference calling to coordinate movements uh, activities. And so I became very attuned to the ways in which memes and uh, influence operations worked across social media and how they were coordinated and what it required to get ideas to trend. For instance, things like Bank of America, Bad for America, in, in these kinds of actions that um, led to uh, distributed protest across the United States in the years of 2011 and 2012. When it culminated in Occupy Sandy, what we saw was a movement that had built up quite a bit of online networks and credibility, be able to uh, do direct action by raising um, millions of dollars in mutual aid funding, as well as helping people affected by the storm find um, uh, help if they needed mold remediation or anything you can imagine in terms of moving destroyed, you know, appliances out of their house. Occupy became this reservoir of knowledge and action, uh, so much so that there were articles being written in 2012 about how Occupy protesters were able to outpace the Red Cross in terms of food delivery and and volunteer management. And so I I, I knew then that there was something very special about how you move information and resources from the wires to the weeds. And in studying Occupy, it wasn't just that we were looking at this sort of progressive anarchist uh, utopia 
of how the internet could be used to develop a commons. But also there was this underbelly to it. Something else was going on. Um, and I took note of people like Alex Jones, uh, people, libertarian supporters of Ron Paul, uh, as well as the role that uh, Andrew Breitbart played in uh, keeping track of Occupy. And and Andrew Breitbart and Steve Bannon made a movie, a, a documentary, I'll loosely call it a documentary, um, about Occupy Wall Street called Occupy Unmasked, where it showed very clearly in that movie, which we detail in the book, that they were paying attention to how populist movements generate engagement online and how they get people uh, to move from their couches into um, public space. And and one of the things that this documentary Occupy Unmasked focused on was also something that had come up in my dissertation research. And this is perhaps a pretty funny story, which is to say that there was a moment in Occupy where everything felt possible. And so there was this a uh, hoaxer who decided that he was going to pretend to be the management of a band Radiohead, uh, which everybody knows. And they were playing in Madison Square Garden that weekend. Uh, and this person sent an email to Occupy protesters saying, hey, listen, I represent Radiohead. They want to come down and play a few songs at Occupy Wall Street. They'll be there, you know, Friday at four. Let everybody know. And so this rumor instantly spread across the internet and people from Occupy Wall Street were tweeting it out, so much so that Radiohead themselves had to post on Facebook saying, you know, sorry to inform people, although we support, you know, movement politics, we're not going to be there um, Friday at four. And so instantly fans then jumped online to say, well, this would be just like Radiohead to deny that they're going to come. And so that action, reaction, um, skepticism all played a role in bringing thousands of people down to Zuccotti Park one afternoon. And then those people, even if they didn't get what they wanted, which was to see Radiohead, they did engage with other activists. They were talking about the movement's potential. And that really kicked off uh broad engagement with the with the movements as well as um particular action of police violence um where uh, cops did pepper spray um activists in the course of the occupy movement in Zuccotti Park which also gained a lot of media attention so instantly you have these two uh very different kinds of effects one um a total hoax and then one a reaction to police violence that led to this movement really kicking off and taking shape across the United States in different ways. Um, which is all to say that people like Alex Jones later came along to say, this is a great movement. I support it supporting me. And he would introduce concepts like the New World Order, as well as End the Fed, uh, or reiterate concepts like End the Fed, which came from the Ron Paul movement, into Occupy and into this moment of um, collective exuberance about uh, how do we become anti-establishment? How do we hold government to account? How do we reflect on the way that media is interacting with um, politicians and supporting different regimes when we need media to be holding these people to account? And so Occupy is this moment where all of these different groups are aligned on some of these uh, very, you know, global issues for different reasons. And of course, for very different outcomes. And so we track then the splintering of this right wing libertarian uh, set of folks from Occupy into what then becomes later the alt right and what we show as that develops into support for a kind of republicanism 
embodied by Trump. And one of the most interesting parts, I think, to, to mention Tumblr for a second, to, uh, about why we wanted to focus on Breitbart and Steve Bannon's film about Occupy is that, it, as Joan said, it showed that the right and kind of really savvy political provocateurs and and um, and activists were really paying attention to this movement and, and watching very, very closely. And the reason for them to publish the film when they did was so that they could control the narrative about what Occupy was, because Occupy was itself a meme. It stood for a lot of different things to different people. It was very flexible and it was participatory in all the ways that a meme is participatory, which also meant it was open to reinterpretation or as Alex Jones attempted to do, to insert his own ideas into it and make it flexible in that way. So Breitbart and Bannon were trying to say, okay, this was like, it could, it, it meant a lot of different things to a lot of people. People might not necessarily be able to articulate what it stood for. Now, you know, about half a year or something after the movement ended was when their film came out. And it was like, let's have the final say on this is what Occupy was. Um, but what we see in that is sort of the echoes of what we would now call hate watching or cringe watching. And that is where this relates to Tumblr because Tumblr in this day, it, at that time, and you know, a couple of the, the years after it, was this bastion of liberalism and progressiveness. And it was a place where people went online to express, you know, their ideas that people now will say, hey, those early days of Tumblr is where we got some of the really um, progressive ideas about gender and, and all sorts of things. It was a place for young people who were progressive to go and express themselves. And the right watched Tumblr super carefully. Uh, and then, and it was based upon their watching of Tumblr, their hate watching of it, that they invented the meme SJW, social justice warrior, um, which they were referring to like the kinds of folks who were on Tumblr. And so it there's this way in which these wars, these meme wars also involve communities watching each other carefully. Uh, and, and then by understanding them, they... Or, 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 you know, having ex at least examples of them, what we might call, um, oh God, there's there's a word for it that's so academic, jargony, but I love it. It's called salient exemplar. And it's like an idea that's so memorable or a person or image that's so memorable, it sticks in your brain, which often is what a meme will be. Um, you can think of welfare queen is like the perfect example of a salient exemplar. Well, so people from these different groups would watch each other, find the salient exemplars and amplify them. And in that way, then kind of define who their enemy is to their, to their in-group. And so after the Wall Street um, Occupy movement, we then, as our book details, we show how the internet really became this safe place for hate. And some of the hate that was going around and the way in which those groups were um, managing that hate was by watching their enemy very, very closely, turning them into memes, turning them into fodder for jokes that then pushed their agenda forward. So on that topic of groups that are somewhat on opposing sides, but keeping an eye on each other, there's this almost cyclical relationship you detail in your book between content moderators and harmful actors, or really anyone looking to push a certain narrative that would probably be moderated. So there's this dynamic you lay out where, say, a trust and safety team might take steps to mitigate harmful content, and then the actors trying to push those narratives will maybe change their approach or the wording they use, something like that, so they can come right up to the line of moderation without actually crossing it. And that, of course, leads to another change from the trust and safety team, and it gets quite cyclical. So I'm curious if you could talk about how you've seen that change over time as social media platforms have evolved and what you see going forth that could be helpful in mitigating the spread of harmful content. Yeah, one of the challenges of writing this book was we wanted to write about technology and innovation and technological change, but we didn't want to make it a book about content moderation or a book about social media platforms. Um, what we really wanted to do was write a history that showed this without necessarily telling uh, too much uh, theory. And so 
the work that we do day to day at the Technology and Social Change Project has a lot to do with tactical innovation, which is a concept um, that comes from social movement research and sociology, Douglas McAdams' research on civil rights movements and how any time a movement figures out a tactic that works, like for instance, in the civil rights movement, you get these tactics that shift from uh, bus boycotts to counter sit-ins because every time you shift your tactics in a social movement, whoever's trying to counter your movement is also going to shift. They're going to figure out a way and there's a lag in the in-between time where your tactic works, but eventually there'll be a counter move, uh, much like a a chess match. And then once that counter move is patterned and um, viable, then your tactic no longer carries on. And so if you think about this from the standpoint of, uh, in particular, white supremacists online, they had for years been trying to figure out a way to get their message into the public without explicitly letting people know that they were white nationalists. And so Trump afforded this entire movement a wedge into the public eye. And we saw this most resolutely um, in his declaration of something like build the wall. So he's chanting build the wall and people are saying, oh, this is explicitly racist. And he's saying, no, it's about immigration. But under cover of all of that and online, you have people that are saying, "Okay, we don't have to tell people we're racist or we don't have to tell people we're white supremacists. We can just talk about these issues in public without disclosing who we really are. And these movements online decided that one of the ways that they were going to recruit folks was going to be to go to Trump uh, rallies and engage Uh, as well as engage in online conversation about Build the Wall. So anywhere they saw memes about it, they created memes about it, they would go that route. And um, because we trace the history of memes in this book, we were able to show that Build the Wall wasn't even something that Trump had come up with. This was something that originated with the Minutemen movement, uh, which was a Uh, movement of people, vigilantes at the Mexican border who believed that it was within their right and their purview to police uh, the border with, you know, without being law enforcement. Um, And so they used to sell these T-shirts that said, build that wall. And so Trump was echoing this longer, uh, more historical uh, meme in his in his uh, campaign rhetoric. And then that was reflected on and into the organizing of the alt-right and other white supremacist groups online. But as social media companies started to learn about the trafficking of hate speech and harassment online, they started to uh, not outright ban phrases like build the wall, but they did start to demote and downrank and and remove from indexing certain keywords. And these kind of tactics, these content moderation tactics, uh, YouTube would often remove uh, certain videos from recommendation or from search. So you could still get to them and they were still on the platform, but they weren't going to be easily, easily accessed uh, or served up in recommendations. And so over time, you saw these groups of people realizing that their engagement was being stifled in different ways. And so they'd come up with other tactics, different ways of naming videos, different uh, content tagging strategies, going back to a term like social justice warrior. Um, I did a study with Leon Yin, um, around content tags on YouTube. Um, And what me and and Leon Yin found, he's at the markup these days, um, was that tags like social justice warrior were more often used on right-wing and far-right content than they ever were on leftist content, as well as other key terms like Black Lives Matter. And so what you would see in the underbelly of the internet and in the the connective tissue uh, 
was these battles over uh, what kind of content and tagging was going to be useful to getting around these uh, content moderation strategies and, of course, ultimately to reach the public. Now, there's also incidences where this spurs its own kind of innovation. For instance, um, Gab really initially formed and conducted most of its marketing around this idea that white supremacists were going to be welcomed on their platform, not because they supported white supremacy, but because they support everybody's right to free speech. Of course, that later turned into Gab does, you know, endorse tacitly and overtly white supremacist content and eventually led to a poster, uh, Robert Bowers posting on there right before he committed an atrocity at, at Tree of Life Synagogue. But that's all to say that it's not just that people are going to try to get around the content moderation and they're going to try to get through to political actors that they think they can incite and mobilize, uh, but also that we're going to see innovation develop out of these political conditions under which uh, content moderation operates. Um, In many ways, by not legislating the internet um, in any significant way, by not providing guardrails for content moderators, politicians have really uh, shaped the way in which we've ended up here. Because if they were to require more oversight by these companies of their own products, uh, politicians themselves wouldn't be able to get away with so much. And so it's a very complex and delicate issue because at the heart of it, and I think this is a truism, at least in the United States, is that people fear losing their freedom of speech. However, I think people should think about it a little bit differently, which is to say that what do we lose when people with seemingly endless amounts of money and um, untold amount of influence are able to co-opt these channels and use them for political suppression? use them to foment outrage. And so it's no longer the case that we're dealing with the social media of Occupy where activists are clamoring for representation. But we've had over a decade now of practice where politicians have now learned to turn those values of free speech on their head and use them Uh, particularly use and weaponize social media as a tool for uh, their own political gain and profit. We can't forget disinformation has become an industry. And as a result, social media companies, politicians, they profit in untold millions and billions of dollars yearly because of the design of these systems. And so even though we study some of the smaller fringe movements and the trollish practices of them, what we get to by the end of Meme Wars is showing how these same tactics that first appeared even before Occupy in movements for Ron Paul, for instance, become the tactics du jour of major political parties who... Um, by and large, don't need networked media or legacy media to uh, get their point across anymore. They can go direct to the population through social media, which puts social media companies in this position of having to uh, provide the gatekeeping function that legacy media used to provide. And this put social media companies in a very uncomfortable position because what they have to recognize, and I think what they fail to do uh, routinely, is they have to recognize that their product is the problem and that their product is amplification. And so as a result, they need to make sure that what is being amplified on the platform isn't also being used to suppress and oppress the public 
through political disinformation or medical misinformation in particular. Okay, so pe- so people are afraid to lose their freedom of speech. But what the internet is doing and what all of these systems together working in concert do is not um, speech, it's amplification. And so what people don't have a right to is to have their speech amplified by systems beyond their control. And what other people just going around the internet shouldn't have to deal with is any person's speech being bombarded at them um, that is amplified in these artificial ways. And so it's not about saying you can't speak, but what the book is trying to show is that the way that the internet has and the shape of these technological systems interacts with our culture and then interacts with our politics means that there's now systems in place to take speech that has an agenda to amplify it and make it so omnipresent that it can be not avoidable, that it it sucks people down into rabbit holes, that it changes people's minds who weren't necessarily looking for it. You know, they went on Facebook to agree to go to their niece's, you know, birthday party. And what they see then is, you know, meme after meme after meme or, or news article after news article after news article that has a specific point of view, has a specific idea. And what's not visible to that person in that moment is the very complex systems and um, sophisticated systems and sophisticated agendas of the people who maybe workshopped that meme and sent it out had um, that enabled it to get in front of that person's face. Uh, and, And that's why the first draft of our book was called Drafted into the Meme Wars, um, because there's this way in which it's everyone on the internet who's just passively going around trying to find a recipe for soup or whatever, who then encounters these powerful ideas. And there's not a way to, you don't know when you're doing that, the history of who put it out there or why, or or all the systems that make it important. Um, And the reason we wanted to write the book was because then as January 6th was unfolding in 2021, people were shocked and saying like, where did these ideas come from and how did this happen? This seems like it came out of nowhere. And the, the point where, that, you know, Jones scholarship and our book is trying to make is that it didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of these really, really um, sophisticated groups and systems who who were working behind the scenes to put all of these things in front of your face in this amplified way that then uh, played on the algorithms of the internet that then was amplified by politicians with an agenda who knew how this game was played and were playing it with a great deal of savvy. That is what then led people to have this intense swell of emotion and devotion and actually, you know, mobilize them to take action. Uh, so in some ways it was, you know, the book is trying to empower people to say these things that you don't understand or that seem like they came out of nowhere or that seem scary, they really don't come out of nowhere and they are able to be understood. There's actually like cycles and systems and we can break it down for you. Like first this happens and then this happens. Um, And it really gets uh, distilled down into this notion that it's actually just people who want to have free speech versus people who want to moderate speech. Uh, And it's really not as simple as that at all. And in fact, free speech online and the idea of free speech these days has itself become a meme that, you know, that means something to different people and that can then be used to silence others. Uh, but, But I think as Joan was saying, if we think about free speech differently, a little bit differently, one of the things to say is that just you should be free to go around the internet and not have landmines that were placed there by like invisible sources um, waiting for you to like engulf you into a meme war you didn't want to get involved in in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think memes are particularly weird in the context of free speech because they can fuel harmful narratives, but they're also almost protected by the fact that they're more subjective and humorous than just making a statement. I know, for example, in the wake of January 6th, hearing someone say that memes are somewhat responsible for what happened here, you'd be thinking of, you know, maybe pictures with funny text or that image of a cat from a decade ago that wanted to has cheeseburgers, something like that. 
I'm curious in your mind, as scholars that have studied this for a while, do you think that we are downplaying the thought and agenda that goes into memes? And do you think that we either as a society or as academics, social media companies, anything, are essentially taking memes seriously enough? My dissertation supervisor was an anthropologist of humor named Martha Lampland. And one of the things that she studies is jokes in Hungary of all places, right? What do we have to learn there? And, you know, studying post-Soviet jokes, you know, taught her a lot about how society makes sense of itself, the ability to use humor as a way to point out contradiction, as a way to note irony, as a way to call attention to corruption, Um, This is something that many cultures engage in, but it is something that is understudied, especially political humor. And for us, it was interesting the way in which, in particular, I'll take from my, you know, experience looking at this new generation of anti-Black, racist young white men trying to understand, okay, what's driving this? What's bringing them into this uh, subculture online and, and what's sustaining it? And, and by and large, you know, my generation, of course, the big threat was music. There were all of these messages embedded in music. There was, uh, skinhead subculture that was very racist, very violent uh, subculture in punk rock that I grew up around. And But younger people these days are not just getting these messages through fandom and, and gaming, but also from political activism, a reaction to, in many cases, the progressivism of Tumblr, um, which I know is a controversial thing to say that people were feeling excluded from discussions about race and identity and therefore became uh, racist. But I do think that the evidence also suggests not that people had become necessarily anti-Semitic, anti-Black, anti-woman as a result of being exposed to internet content, but they were also looking for a way to identify who they were and what it meant to be white in a society where we finally are having the racial conversations that we need to have. We are finally having important policy discussions about the role of policing in our society. We're finally having uh, serious HR policies and inclusion policies in school and in work that are changing demographically the face of the U.S. Um, And so in our book, we try to go back in time a bit to understand this generation of folks that perhaps got introduced to race and racial politic through the murder of Trayvon Martin and how that discourse about Trayvon Martin and Zimmerman what played out not just in mainstream media but how that affected the coming of age of this new generation of white supremacists calling themselves the alt right they were really uh inundated and and overwhelmed by the idea of what it meant to call someone a white hispanic They didn't understand that terminology. They didn't understand why Zimmerman was being called a white Hispanic. They didn't see the connections between whiteness as a phenotype or the way that you look and the growing tide of of Hispanics in America having different kinds of political opportunities than Black people. And so that um, key moment in our U.S. history is something that was a, a, a turning point within younger groups of people who, you know, thought things like the KKK were very cringy. They thought things like the kind of anti-Semitism of old, of even people like Alex Jones was very cringy. And they sought identity in their whiteness in different ways uh, and also believed 
these kind of fallacies about their earning potential, the fallacies about women denying them families and love and sex. They, you know, they, they, they found this very white way of interacting with shifting demographic trends. And so when we, when I was looking at that and when we were looking at that, I was really trying to understand in depthly, like, you know, are we taking the memes too seriously? Is there something here or is this just jokes? And then as we were digging more closely into the Daily Stormer, which is a well-known white supremacist website, they disclosed in many ways um, that humor is their weapon and humor is the first stage of recruitment because if you can get people to laugh about issues related to race you can get them to take more seriously over time their own race and their position within the social order. And so this to me felt particularly potent as a way to get younger folks who are raised in more progressive, more liberal environments to go back on those trends and uh, seek more traditional family structures, speak out against what it, what, you know, gains have been made in LGBTQ, uh, equality and, and marriage rights to speak out against immigration, to speak out against, uh, uh, any kind of phobia related to Jewish people or the quote unquote globalists. And so, um, I think that humor is something that we have to study and understand in order to understand what the gateways are here and how different opportunists are going to take opportunities like that to really manipulate and to draw younger people into this idea that if they embrace their whiteness, then they will become empowered politically in different ways, um, which I think flies in the face of what we know to be true, which is that white people are uh, still systematically advantaged in most professions and in most cases related to um, any of our uh, persistent inequalities around access to healthcare, access to banking, access to employment, these kind of issues. And so until we're in a moment where we do have clear representation that reflects our population in work and in healthcare and in education, then these narratives about white people losing out uh, because of gains in, in equality uh, are something that white people need to stand up against. I think that those things are going to be winning narratives, uh, unfortunately, until um, you know, these gains are met and that white people realize that the system is something that dominates all of us and that the distinctions we draw between ourselves racially are uh, a consequence of fighting over scraps uh, when in fact, you know, united a multiracial democracy could be prosperous for many more Americans than what we have going now. So I can keep this brief, but since this is a Brookings podcast, I feel like we have to ask at least one question about policy. So there's been a lot of proposed legislation around regulating social media platforms. I'm curious what approaches you've seen either in the halls of government or from social media companies themselves that make you feel optimistic about the future and what approaches, if any, feel like they're missing the mark. I don't know that I can point to any policy changes that I'm excited about, to be honest. I think that we are woefully under-policied about this. There are some, um, you know, privacy protection bills, like in California where I live, that are attempting to holistically look at the internet and what its risks are and how we as people navigate it and um, and how it works for us. But I we don't have anything really on a federal level that makes any sense uh, or that I know of uh, or that you know currently exists. And the real the real 
difficult thing here is that what our book about at least is about meaning and like how you make meaning in the world and how people come to believe things. And the internet and media are systems that enable that. Uh, I, I would say, I think Joan has a lot more specific ideas about how the internet itself could be treated more the way, you know, broadcast media has been, or even journalism, which, you know, has, has, rules and uh, it does have some policies that dictate it. Um, and so perhaps there are specific things that could make the actual infrastructure better and make these systems a little bit less powerful. The thing we're talking about, which is people using um, humor or or kind of disguising their agenda in memorable media snippets or ideas that can be spread around in order to amplify and 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 change minds and and motivate people. That's something that it really predates the internet. You know, it's 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 as old as time. Memes started back in the Greek age. You know, and you could say like Stoics. Part of Stoic philosophy is that you memorize all these sayings some phrases so that you can, it can help you as a heuristic when you need to, you know, make a decision or act. And like, those are memes, the memorable ones, those are memes. Um, I don't know how you draft policy around that kind of meaning making, but I would say that when you look at the book, where is the place where the most um, kind of difference could be made, the, the inflection point in the cycle, it's in the amplification algorithms. It's in the way in which the information is flattened and presented online that takes away any sort of flag of expertise or difference and, and makes a meme look as useful or memorable or trustworthy as a piece of journalism. So uh, there's some key points where it, it, policy could have an impact. That's all I can say. All right. Sounds like there's definitely opportunity for improvement there and some calls to action. Thank you both so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. It was wonderful to hear from you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.